You're listening to the sermon podcast by Southside Baptist Church in Florence, South Carolina. We exist to know God and to make Jesus known. For more up-to-date information, check us out at southsidenow.church. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you. Some of you can let my wife know that I made it here on time this morning and I'm fairly well dressed, I think. (laughs) Yeah, is she okay? I went with all gray. I figured I couldn't go wrong. So, <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, this morning to the Gospel of John. We're going to start in John 20, and then we're going to go back to John chapter 2. I'm beginning a series of messages this morning that I'm calling Jesus is the Answer. Looking at the preaching schedule, I, I'm planning on getting about three of these in before Christmas And then we'll see what happens after the first of the year. But uh, don't worry if you miss one. You're not going to be lost. You're not going to miss out. They each will kind of stand alone. They're simply connected by the theme, Jesus is the answer. To whatever need, whatever dilemma, whatever problem you're facing, uh, He's the answer. And this series is going to focus on the Gospel of John. How many of you have ever noticed that The Gospel of John is a little bit different from the other Gospel uh, accounts. Have you noticed that? In fact, some critics uh, point to those differences and say, well, you can't trust the Bible because those four accounts of the life of Jesus are all different. Well, my answer to that would be, of course they're different. They don't match word for word because they were written by four different men for four different audiences for four different reasons. Mark's gospel, probably we think it was the earliest. He got most of his information, we believe, from the Apostle Peter. It's perhaps the simplest of the four. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience and takes great pains to connect what Jesus says to the Old Testament. You get a lot of phrases in Matthew like, this fulfilled that which was written by the prophet Isaiah or prophet Jeremiah or Micah. Luke, on the other hand, was writing primarily to a Gentile audience, and he says that from the very beginning, he was trying to set out an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke may be the most historically accurate of the uh, Gospels. He's trying to put it in order, and he especially makes the point that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, which included the Gentiles. When we get to John, which may be the latest of the gospel uh, accounts, he's not just retelling the story of Jesus. He has a different purpose. Look with me at John chapter 20 and verse 31. John tells us clearly here why he's writing his gospel account. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Two reasons He gives us here for writing His gospel. Number one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And secondly, that by believing, you may have life in His name. Thus, John picks his material with those two goals in mind. For example, there are 34 miracles recorded in all the Gospels together. Guess how many are in John's Gospel? Just seven. And of those seven, four of those don't appear in any of the other Gospels. They're unique to the Gospel of John. Now, those seven are pretty spectacular. 
And why does he choose those seven? Well, I believe it's to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, John doesn't even call them miracles. He calls them signs. Signs that point to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. So my hope in preaching these messages is to convince you, if you don't already believe, that Jesus is who the Bible says He is, the risen Son of God, the Messiah. And secondly, that you would be convinced that no matter what you may be facing, no matter what problem comes your way, Jesus is still the answer. And like many of those that we will meet in this gospel, I want you to see that you can trust Him, you can put your faith in Him. Now this morning we're going to look at the very first of those miracles we find in John chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. If you would turn there with me and follow along, John chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Some people have a lot of trouble with this story. Regardless of whether you think this was unfermented grape juice or the real stuff, it's a little hard to picture Jesus at a party. We, we usually don't think of Christ line dancing with the maid of honor or proposing toast to the new bride and groom or telling stories about when she was a little girl. We're more comfortable with Jesus preaching to the multitudes or healing the sick or even debating with the Pharisees. We don't think of him as a party-going guy, and yet there's every indication Jesus loved parties. He almost never turns down a dinner invitation. In fact, in Zacchaeus's case, he even invites himself to dinner. The straight-laced, self-righteous Pharisees even once accused him of being a wine-bibber and a sinner because he hung out with people like Matthew the tax collector. They wanted to know why he didn't fast more like John the Baptist and his disciples, especially going to parties where there were sinful people. I want you to notice something in verse 2 that you may never have noticed uh, before. Why Jesus attended this wedding in Galilee. Verse 2 says, And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. He was invited. That's why he came. 
He was invited to this wedding, and I don't think it was just a polite gesture. I don't think it was because he was related to the family in some way or because he was beginning to develop a reputation as a teacher. I think he was invited because the bride and groom wanted him there. I think he was invited because people enjoyed being around Jesus. You mean, Pastor, you think Jesus went to this wedding feast to have fun? Yeah, that's exactly what I I, I believe. I, I think he laughed. I think he danced. I believe he joined in some good-natured teasing of the newlyweds. He may well have been out there tying tin cans to the tail of the donkey they were going to leave on the reception on. <laughs> I believe he enjoyed the good food, maybe had two pieces of cake. Uh, I think he had a good time. That's why he came to this wedding. But this wedding that starts out with such promise and such joy soon runs into a problem. We don't know who discovers it, but when one of the servants goes to get another jug of wine to refill the punch bowl, he finds the containers empty. They're just about out. Now, I don't know if they just didn't plan properly, or maybe they had more guests than they expected. Jesus and his disciples were, you know, add-ons. Maybe everyone was just really thirsty, but the wine is almost gone, and there's no Circle K to go get some more. (laughs) Now, putting this in perspective, this would not have been the worst tragedy to ever occur. It's not a matter of life and death. It definitely would have been an embarrassment to this young couple and their family. For one thing, it would have probably cut short the festivities. Normally, these events could last a week or so, but uh, everyone might go home early uh, if there's no more wine. This is a kind of a party buster, would put a little damper on the celebration. And I'm sure when the society editor of the Cana Gazette wrote up about the ceremony, there would have been little said about... The, the, the vows or the, the, uh, the music or the hors d'oeuvres or where the honey, they plan to go on their honeymoon. Instead, the headline would have read, wine runs out at wedding reception. You know, that's all anybody would ever really remember about this event. But again, that's not probably the end of the world. But let me spiritualize this story just a little bit. Wine in the scripture is always a symbol of of joy. The question this morning for us is what happens when the wine runs out? What do we do when the joy is gone? Surely all of us at some point have been there. Maybe we started a new job with excitement and enthusiasm only to find out after a few months it wasn't quite what we expected. The boss is impossible The other employees are negative and constantly jockeying for position, and the customers are never satisfied. And no matter how good you might feel when you get up and you go to work in the morning, by the time you leave, you feel beat down. The joy is gone. Or maybe you thought getting married was going to solve all your problems. You know, Mr. Wonderful came along and swept you off your feet, and your wedding day was the happiest day of your life, and... Yet five years and two kids later, you're wondering whatever happened to happily ever after. You know, Mr. Wonderful's never home, and you spend hardly any time together, and when you do, you argue. You're mortgaged to the hilt, you're tired, you're frustrated, maybe even a little angry. The wine has run out, along with the milk and the bread. The romance is gone. 
Or maybe you thought having children was going to be so much fun. You, you couldn't wait to be a parent, and you read Dr. Spock and James Dobson, and you were going to be the most wonderful parents ever. And for years, you put your life on hold, and you poured your life into those little darlings. You lived for your kids. But one day, you woke up, and you discovered that those little angels had suddenly become stubborn, headstrong teenagers, much like you, <laughs> much like you were at that age. Scary, scary thought, isn't it? It seems now all you do is yell, and all they do is complain. There's not much peace on Elm Street. The wine has run out. Or maybe you were looking forward to finally retiring, enjoying the good life, but your life savings got eaten up by medical bills, and even if you could afford to travel and see the world, you really don't feel like it. About all you do is make the rounds to the doctors and the drugstores, and the golden years have turned out to not be so golden. Have I depressed you yet? <laughs> what happens when the joy runs out? Even serving the Lord, even ministry and worship can become dull and boring and a chore instead of a blessing. What do we do when the wine is gone? And I submit to you this morning, the answer is to look to Jesus. Give it to Him. He's the only one who can bring the joy back. He's the only one who can take care of the problem. And that's exactly what happens in this little story. <clears throat> we don't know how Mary finds out about this dilemma. Maybe she's related. Maybe she's a close friend. Maybe she was in charge of the reception. We don't really know. But when she finds out about the problem, she knows where to turn. She looks to Jesus. Now, notice particularly here how Mary demonstrates her faith in Christ. And by the way, I believe that it was Mary's faith that caused Jesus to act. I believe it's Mary's faith that is the catalyst for this miracle. You see, I don't think Jesus came to this wedding with any intention of performing a miracle. In fact, he says in verse 4 that his hour, his time, has not yet come. To perform a miracle at this point would be premature. Jesus is there simply as a guest. He's not there to make a show. He's, he comes with no agenda. And yet the faith of Mary, I believe, causes him to get involved. Listen, Jesus is impressed this morning when we trust him, when we believe in him. Notice the confidence that Mary has in her son. Notice how she demonstrates her faith. I see a couple of ways here. First of all, she demonstrates her faith by bringing the problem to Jesus. Look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now I suppose there were a number of people Mary could have told about this need. She could have gone to the master of the feast she could have talked to some of the leading family members who might have been able to help. They could have gotten a committee together and discussed the problem. But instead, Mary comes to Jesus. And oh, how we need to learn this lesson this morning. Whatever the need, whatever the problem, we need to take it to the Lord. As the old hymn says it so well, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. But notice Jesus' answer to Mary in verse 4. 
He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, I want you to understand here, I don't think Jesus is being rude or sarcastic to his mother. He's not rebuking her or telling her to just leave him alone. No, I think in some ways he's trying to draw out her faith. I believe he's testing her in a sense. He says, Mom, why are you asking me? Do you really think, do you really believe that I can do something about this problem? How much faith do you really have in me? What does this concern have to do with me? And then Jesus makes the statement here that's a little difficult to understand. He says, my hour has not yet come. What he's really saying is, I haven't really begun my ministry yet. I'm just in this process of gathering my disciples. Up to this point, he hasn't performed any other miracles. It's not yet time to reveal his power. And yet this request of Mary causes him to act. And I see a great lesson here about the power of prayer. Do you see the connection? Do you see the part that faith and prayer and asking plays in bringing about this miracle? Sometimes I think when we have urgent needs, when we face impossible situations and insurmountable problems, we sometimes wonder, well, why didn't God do something? Why doesn't God get involved? Why doesn't He act? Well, maybe it's because we haven't asked in faith. The little book of James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Our prayers really do make a difference this morning. Jesus gets involved. Jesus meets this need simply because of Mary's appeal and her faith. And listen, He will respond to you and to your needs when you ask Him. Which brings me to the second way that Mary demonstrates her faith. And that is by trusting Jesus to take care of the need. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now notice what happens here. Mary makes her request. She turns to the servants. She says, do whatever he tells you. And then she leaves. She puts the whole problem in Jesus' hands. And then she goes on about her other business. Now, I think this is a crucial point. She doesn't tell Jesus and then give one of the servants a hundred bucks to go to the next town and buy some more wine. There is no plan B. There is no backup plan. If Jesus doesn't act, the party's over. She simply brings the need to Jesus and she leaves it there. Oh, if you and I could only learn to do that this morning. Let me get practical here for a moment. If we could learn to do this, we would never spend another sleepless night worrying about some problem. We wouldn't need a gallon of Maalox or Prilosec to keep our ulcers under control. We wouldn't bite our fingernails or run around frantically trying to solve problems in our own strength. We would experience incredible peace if we could only do what Mary does in this passage. But so often we don't. We bring the problem to the Lord, and, but we don't leave it there. We, we offer up a quick prayer, and then we move on with our alternative plan. Let's say, for instance, we have a financial need. Something unexpected comes up. The car breaks down, or you get laid off from your job, or you have some big medical expense. And so wisely, you go to the Lord in prayer. But as soon as you get up off your knees, 
You start trying to work out another solution on your own. You ask a family member or a friend for a loan, or you go to the bank and look about taking out a second mortgage on your house, or you go on Craigslist and post an ad to sell your motorcycle or something. You know, I, I, I wonder sometimes if God might be ready, just on the verge of, of providing a miracle, and then he sees what we've done, and he says, oh well, I guess they don't need my miracle now. They've already solved the problem some other way. If Mary had sent out and borrowed wine from the neighbors, there would have been no reason for Jesus to get involved. We simply need to bring our needs to Christ and leave them there. Then the third way that Mary demonstrates her faith is by commanding the servants to obey. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Because of Mary's command, when Jesus tells these servants what to do, even though it seems foolish, even though it looks like it has no chance of success, they do it anyway. They fill up the six water pots, they draw out some, and they take it to the governor of the feast. Now, the theologians have a field day with this miracle. I was reading a commentary the other day that had a long discussion about when the water turned into wine. Did it turn to wine in the water pot? Did it turn to wine in the cup as they took it to the governor? Or did it remain water all along and the people just drank it and it tasted like wine? I, who cares? I mean, where do, they, where do they come up with some of this, 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 these questions? But the point I want you to see is that these servants did exactly what Jesus said. Without hesitation, they obeyed him. And this is the point where I think sometimes we miss out on the miracle God wants to perform in our lives. We have, may have a need. We may take it to Jesus in prayer. But then when he tells us what to do, we won't do it. We hesitate. We delay. And we prevent the miracle. I've often thought that probably one of the most frustrating professions might be that of being a doctor. Being a preacher may be in there second or third somewhere, but uh, I'm sure there are times when it's exceedingly rewarding to be a doctor and satisfying to see someone get well, but the frustrating part of being a doctor is so many of their patients won't do what the doctor says. I read an article recently that said doctors' most frustrating patients come in three categories. It said, first, there was the hypochondriac. They don't really want to get well. They kind of enjoy being sick. If they, if they got well, they wouldn't have anything to talk about. You know, I, I think I've really known some people in the course of my life who would rather go to the hospital than Disney World. I mean, it was just that doctors can't do much for that kind uh, of a patient. The second frustrating category is what this article called the uncooperative patient. They go to the doctor, and he tells them th some things like, okay, quit smoking, lay off the salt, take it easy for a couple of weeks, take this medicine, and then come back to see me. Well, before he gets out of the parking lot, he lights up, and he goes home and has two big slices of country ham for dinner, and then the next day, instead of resting, he goes out and works 10 or 11 hours, he takes his medicine whenever he feels like it, and then he gets mad and changes doctors because this would not do him any good. The third category it mentioned is the patient who tries to improve upon what the doctor says. For instance, if one pill will help, three ought to really make me feel better. You know. 
After reading that, I thought, you know, that's maybe how the Lord feels sometimes. How often we ask God to help us meet a need, and then we won't do what He clearly tells us to do in His Word. For instance, how can we expect God to meet our financial needs when we ignore what He says about tithing and giving? Or how can we expect Him to straighten out our home life and our family difficulties when we won't even give Him the time to come to church or to worship? Obedience is a crucial part of the question. Now very quickly, I want us to see how Jesus restores joy to this wedding feast. There are two things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice His provision is always better than what we expect. Look again at verse 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying, you've saved the best until now. My point is, when God does something... He does it right. He goes beyond what we can even think or imagine. He loves to provide the best for His children. And then secondly, notice that He always supplies more than we need. Our God is never stingy. He specializes in abundance. Look again at verse 6 and 7. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now get your calculators out and follow me here for a moment. Six water pots filled to the brim. Each one holds 20 to 30 gallons. Let's split the difference and say they hold 25. If my math is right, that's 150 gallons of wine. They've got enough wine for this party to continue a month or so. Uh, This young couple can probably sell some of it and take a nice honeymoon on the Mediterranean somewhere. Uh, When God meets a need, He always does it with abundance. And I believe that same principle applies spiritually. You and I don't have to settle this morning for a meager existence of just getting by. We don't have to drag through from Sunday to Sunday just, you know, somehow hoping we can make it. God wants us to experience abundant, joyous, overflowing, spirit-filled life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. All we have to do is simply ask for it this morning. Let me close with this. I have a feeling this morning that Maybe I've been speaking to some real needs. For some of you, the wine has run out. Maybe you've lost the joy of living. The spring's kind of gone out of your step. It's a chore to get up in the morning and go through another day. Maybe you're dealing with some problem at work or you're frustrated with a dead-end career. Maybe the joy's disappeared from your marriage relationship. Perhaps you've allowed petty conflicts to, and misunderstandings to rob you of a valued friendship. Maybe financial struggles have 
made you blind to all the blessings that God has given you. Maybe even serving the Lord has become dull, boring, routine. The good news this morning is there is one who can bring back the joy. There is one this morning who can take care of any need that you may have. And whatever it is, if you will simply trust it to Him this morning. If like Mary, you'll bring it to Him and say, Lord, I, I don't know what, I, I need something in my life. The, the, the joy is gone. The wine is gone. Can you restore it? Can you help me? He can. And he can do it abundantly. Whatever it is, will you trust Him this morning? And then will you be willing to do whatever He says, whatever He's willing to ask of you? Would you stand with me this morning? We're not going to sing this morning, but I have two questions for you. One, do you know this Jesus? This one who brings joy, this one who makes life worth living? You can this morning. He's waiting to give you this abundant life. It's as simple as coming to Him and, and asking and saying, Lord, I, I want this joy. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to live within me. Help me to be a different person, a new person. Or maybe you're already a believer this morning, but you've lost your joy. I want you to know He's the joy restorer this morning. All you need to do is ask Him. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a closing prayer. If you feel a need this morning, you'd like to come forward. Pastor Josh is here, and I'll be here at the front. We'll be glad to, to pray with you this morning. Or you can pray right where you're standing this morning, if you feel like it. Just talk to the Lord and ask Him to restore the joy in your heart, in your life. Let's pray together.